0: It was a huge Pac-12 weekend. We'll talk about the coaching changes in the conference and what's to come this week. Plus, we digest what was a wild weekend. Who's going to the Rose Bowl anyway? All that ahead on Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast.
1: What's better than one John? Here's Johnny. Hmm, nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kanzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John.
0: We're jumping right into today's podcast. And uh, I'm John Canzano. I'm here with John Wilner. And Wilner, I have to know because I was at the Oregon Oregon State game, which we'll get into, and we'll talk about a variety of other things on today's episode. But I have to know uh, what your Saturday night, Sunday morning was like with David Shaw announcing that he's leaving Stanford, the Oregon Oregon State game, Washington. The Pac-12 championship game implications uh, going into late
1: Saturday night. What was your weekend like? (laughs) It got real wild at about 12, I don't know, 15 on Sunday morning when David Shaw announced he was stepping down. You know, he is uh, the second longest tenured coach in the conference behind Utah's Kyle Whittingham. uh, Four-time Pac-12 coach of the year. Three-time champ. Two-time Rose Bowl winner. Uh, And at 12.15 at night, after a loss to Brigham Young in the season finale, he steps up to the podium and says, I'm stepping down. And it was, uh, for all the speculation about whether he was going to return next year, it was still a surprise, I think, especially at that hour. Uh, So I got real busy starting at that. I was already busy. I got even more busy. And I kept going. It, I was busy until like 3.30 a.m. But it was a long day, right? Well, the first game was, uh, I'm trying to think, first game was 12.30, right? The Oregon-Oregon State game started 12.30. So, I, you know, I went straight for, I don't know, 16, 16 hours. How about you? Yeah,
0: I mean, it was obviously the, the Civil War football game with Oregon-Oregon State was a 12.30 kickoff. So, uh, you know, I started early and I was geared up for that game. And then, The Kenny Dillingham to Arizona State thing happens, you know, midday. The line shifts. Jonathan Smith comes up to me on the sideline before the Oregon-Oregon State game, and he says, why did the line flip? And, you know, it was apparent that word about Kenny Dillingham's, uh, you know, the Beavers were suddenly a favorite, and they had started off – they started the week as a seven-point underdog, then it went to three, then it went down to uh, one and a half, and then it flipped to Oregon State minus one. And, you know, I – it, we very quickly figured out that it was uh, it, it surrounded the Kenny Dillingham news and so that happens into the evening and then David Shaw at O Dark 30 decides to do what he's doing but I wasn't I'm kicking myself on the Shaw thing and tell me how you how you feel about this because you know we saw the kind of cryptic statement from the athletic director at Stanford Bernard Muir a few weeks ago where he said we're not going to make any changes during the season I'm kicking myself for not reading into that. We ought, we assumed I assumed he meant coordinator changes. David Shaw's not going anywhere. Like he but I I had kind of talked with some other people about the idea that, you know, he'd been there a while, the game has changed. We've seen coaches like Chris Peterson walk away and you know, I ran into Dennis Erickson on the sideline at the Oregon Oregon State game and Dennis Erickson said I wouldn't want any part of the transfer portal in NIL, like forget it. Like that would chase me out of the out of the business and And I'm kicking myself for not looking at Saturday night's BYU-Stanford game and wondering if David Shaw would have something to say in the aftermath. Was he going to step away? Was he, you know, why didn't I see that coming?
1: Oh, I've been thinking about it. I just didn't, I think I didn't expect that it was going to come, you know, when he walks out of the locker room after the last game. There, You know, to me, it felt like something that would be a Sunday or a Monday announcement. Um, But, you know, give him credit for taking it head on and stepping up to the podium and giving the news. And can I just say uh, to back up that I love the fact that Jonathan Smith is aware of the betting lines? I know. Uh, because, I, know. I mean, that's the reality, right? That is the world we're living in with college sports and college football. And the Pac-12 is, you know, is looking into, uh, you know, they, they've signed a deal with a, a company that that will uh, organize their data and statistics for pop, possible sale to to gambling websites. The fact that Smith is aware of that stuff just makes him that much more pragmatic, yeah, in my, I, I in my there's, opinion.
0: There's two things going on there, because one, I think coaches today are so tuned into everything that I think he was thinking, is Bo Nix not going to play? Like, do, do I yeah. not know something game plan wise? And so I think he was, you know, he had kind of a... Anxious look on his face and I said to him I said what you don't like being the favorite like you rather have the chip holder?" and he didn't really laugh Like he just kind of walked away and you know, he was you know kind of muttering about like, you know I don't more or less. I don't like this because there's something going on I don't know about and as a coach they all want control and they all want to know what's happening and then I wandered down to where Oregon was warming up and Dan Lanning and Kenny Dillingham were talking and they were having kind of a moment. Like, and now looking back, I, I, I kind of wonder if, you know, Lanning had his hand on his shoulder and he was kind of whispering into his ear. And they, it wasn't, you know, it didn't look like it was game related. It looked more like two friends. And I now wonder if Dan Lanning said, hey, look, this is the last time you're going to be a coordinator. Now you'll be the guy in charge. Now You're going to have your own program. We'll, you know, we'll meet on the field. And Lanning has said multiple times that he does not want to stand in the way of assistant coaches elevating, as he did at Georgia, and going on to become a head coach. But he's losing Kenny Dillingham after one season as his play caller, and he'll yep. have to go out and find a new one. I'm John yep. Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com. I'm here with the great John Wilner, Bay Area News Group. You can find him at pac12hotline.com. We have so much to talk about. I just wanted to start by just kind of figuring out how your day was, but let's go
1: down. Yeah, well, yeah, go ahead. Let's get into the Shaw thing. You want yeah, to go into Shaw? Yeah, let's start with that. Okay, so, you know, it is I I totally get where Erickson is coming from, you know, with the NIL and transfer portal and all that kind of stuff. And and I think that to a certain degree, Shaw is, you know, he is a little bit old school. Right. And the bigger problem is that Stanford is super old school, like Stanford is, you know, 1925 old school. And it is that is a tough job to begin with. And it has gotten to like Cal to a certain extent much tougher in the last couple years right first the bay area schools i think were hit harder by covid uh, protocols than any other schools in the conference right they had to deal with the bay area politics and i think it made it much more difficult for them to maintain uh competitiveness with their peers Uh, through COVID and coming out of COVID. Then you throw on the transfer portal, which is really now what, like two years old, Uh, the one-time transfers, one-year-old, NIL, a year and a half old. And Stanford is, you know, moves slowly. As Shaw said himself, Saturday night, Stanford moves very slowly on this stuff. They can't get transfers in right now. So certainly their recruiting has not been very good the last few years. There's no question about that. But they can't, They can't fix that with the transfer portal. They lose guys. They can't replace them. Uh, Austin Jones, perfect example, right? I mean, it was terrific for SC these last couple weeks. That was a Stanford tailback. They lose him. They can't replace him in the portal. So it has made that job much more difficult. And unless Stanford adjusts to NIL and the transfer portal, it's going to be difficult for whoever replaces shaw they're never going to get back to competing for a conference title on a regular basis if the institution doesn't adjust
0: yeah and they they're going to have to and or they're going to have to come to grips with the fact that they can't compete and or maybe maybe they're looking at you know once upon a time we talked about with the ivy leagues and you know maybe some of the other schools like stanford go in a different direction and just say look we're not going to join The nil transfer portal world i also think you know it was interesting on media day i kept thinking back to my conversations with david shaw on pac-12 media day he said he felt like a tiger lion in the weeds and i i really do think if this season had gone differently if he had not had another disappointing year record wise we'd be talking we'd be having a different conversation but it didn't fall into place for stanford they've had they've had injuries they have uh, had a lack of success on the field. I think he's tired of losing. I think the game has changed. And we're just watching. You know, he made the comment about it being a year-round thing with no off-season. That's really what it's become. And as a sports writer, I know that, and you know that. When do we go on vacation? I can't imagine the coaches who are responsible for recruiting and maintaining a program who can't really find a week or a month in the schedule to kind of rejuvenate and refresh themselves. And I think, you know— for coaches like Shaw who have been at it that long uh you know at the level that he was coaching at it I think there's some Stanford fans who are probably excited to see where Stanford pivots I think Shaw's probably happy to have you know all of you know get some time off finally but he's also got a son you know one of his sons who's going to be a recruit here and go play college football and maybe he'll get a chance to be a dad or maybe he'll get back into coaching and coach in the NFL where there is an off season
1: yeah well, the Stanford fans were voting with their their feet in their wallet, right? Everybody saw how many empty seats there have been in that stadium all season, really. And, and let's, you know, the the bigger picture issues, transfer portal, NIL, all that, absolutely true. But, I mean, we also need to call, call like we see it here. They haven't recruited very well. Uh, they haven't developed uh, their players the way they did, especially at the lines of scrimmage. They no longer... Uh, you know, dominate up front like they once did. Their injury situation is bad so frequently year after year that it's not just a fluke, in my opinion, that there would be a reversion to the mean if it was a fluke situation. It is so consistently bad that you wonder if there's a systemic problem with their uh, strength and conditioning and and training programs. Uh, You know, they have really developed – uh, you know, Tanner McKee hasn't gotten better, and a lot of the quarterbacks that they've had the last six eight years have not gotten better. The exception to that would be Davis Mills, but I could well, I could tick off five or six guys that did not get better at co- the quarterback position. So it is not all, you know, the external stuff. They have they have not executed as well uh, internally as they did, you know, in the Harbaugh and first half of the Shaw era. There's just no question about that.
0: The athletic director, Muir, who I talked about earlier, he is, he's got a reputation of being very collaborative, that he likes to seek out uh, a lot of advisors, listen to a lot of people, make people feel like they are stakeholders in decisions. Um, I expect he's going to reach out to Andrew Luck and Richard Sherman, uh, just to name a couple of former players, and kind of pick their brains, and he'll probably get some input within that Stanford family as well on campus there. But he cannot wait here because this transfer portal that, that you know, they haven't been able to play in that sandbox, but that portal works two ways. We know that. And if they wait too long to make a decision or to seek out somebody who can hold the Stanford players in place, uh, that portal is going to be a revolving door m- moving in the wrong direction for Stanford. So I think he's got to move here. I saw some of the names that you threw out. I think you absolutely have to try to talk to Chris Peterson, native Northern California, UC Davis grad. Uh, I saw Troy Walters on your list. I think you you do that. I think maybe you talk to Greg Roman, the uh, former offensive coordinator under Jim Harbaugh. Uh, and how about Brett Brennan at San Jose State? I heard people you know somebody threw out Deion Sanders as an idea. You know, does that fit at Stanford? Does neon Dion fit at Stanford? I mean, would that be the most? <laughs> not stanford move ever
1: that would be the most non-stanford move ever uh i don't see that one uh brennan would be interesting you know he's he's doing well at san jose state would stanford hire Someone from San Jose State? They yeah, many you know years the Bay ago. Area. I grew John up there.
0: I don't think so. I think Stanford would look down their nose and go, and they shouldn't. Probably. They shouldn't they, look down their nose because Brent Brennan can coach. Like He I, can I, coach. They yeah. hired
1: Jack Elway from San Jose State. They hired John Ralston from San Jose State. Maybe. So well, maybe. I don't know, but this is a different time, and I, I just don't know if they go go there. I'll tell you who they need to, and this will, you know, I'm, I don't know that they're going to do this, but the guy that they should reach out to for advice is Jim Harbaugh. Because Harbaugh knows how to win at Stanford, but he also is currently, he's deep in it, right? He is deep in NIL, deep in the transfer portal. He will he will see both sides of Stanford's situation. Uh, and I think that they should go to him just for advice. Obviously, he's not going to go back. He's not going to take the job. He's, he's king of the Big Ten right now. Uh, but he would be somebody, if I'm the AD there, I would reach out to Harbaugh and say, who should be on our short list? I
0: like that. Uh, let's move to the other hire. Kenny Dillingham uh, is on a Cessna just within an hour after Oregon State beats Oregon at That Reaser was great Stadium. detail you had in your
1: column about yeah, that.
0: And he's on his way to Phoenix from the Corvallis Regional <laughs> Municipal Airport. Uh, so Dillingham to Arizona State. Um, youngest head coach in Power Five Conference football now, replacing Dan Lanning, the guy he was working for. I get why Arizona State's doing it. He's an Arizona State guy. He's got ties to the uh, you know Chaparral High School, that powerhouse high school in Scottsdale, and uh, you know the donors are going to like him. Uh, the faculty's going to like him. Uh, I don't know if it's going to work out because I don't know if a great play caller, and I think he is a great play caller, I think he's got a really creative mind on the offensive side, and I think he can recruit. I don't know if that guy can be a CEO. Like We don't know that yet. Same time, I don't blame Arizona State for doing it because it's what I would have done. But I worry because, you know, look, Mark Helfrich at Oregon was a play caller, coordinator, but not a CEO type. Can a 32-year-old Kenny Dillingham be the CEO
1: at Arizona State? What do you think of the hire? Well, I, I kind of agree. I don't know how many options they had, right? With the NCAA sanctions looming over that program and there's just so much uncertainty and it's been such a mess for a year and a half. I just don't know how many qualified candidates, meaning guys who head coaches who have won, you know, the, a Kalen DeBoer level guy, somebody who has won at multiple levels uh, and is looking, trying to ascend to the power five uh, level. You know, I don't know how many guys they, they could have gotten. So to some extent their pool was limited and Dillingham obviously wanted the job and is willing because he's got such deep ties to the university and the area, he's going to be willing to, to deal with whatever sanctions come, whether it's a a bowl ban or multiple years of scholarship reductions, he loves that place enough that he'll deal with it. And I think that was a big, you know, obviously a big check Mark in his favor. So just on that alone, it kind of makes sense. But to me, it's not unlike Oregon hiring Dan Lanning, right? Lanning had been a coordinator for a couple of years and, what was he 30, 34 when he was when the ducks hired him last winter and and now here's Dillingham who's never been a head coach and is really young and you kind of have to expect there's going to be some growing pains.
0: This is a cycle that we're seeing across college football that there on every staff there used to be a great recruiter or a great play caller that person. Uh, Now the emphasis being on talent and recruiting, that person is now elevated to the head coach. And Willie Taggart had it happened at Oregon. Mario Cristobal had it happen at Oregon. We saw Dan Lanning come in. I think you have programs that are far more willing to go, look, we can spend five or six million dollars on an assistant coach pool. We'll get somebody who can call plays and who can coach these guys. We value the recruiter. The problem with that is that the recruiter, to me, usually doesn't value the same things that the old CEO, head coach, and college football valued. They valued the relationship with the university. They valued the relationship with the boosters. They valued continuity and and their coaching staff. And now the recruiters, I mean, they're much more transient types of personalities. And Mario Cristobal was that way at Oregon. And and I think we're seeing, you know, Dillingham— He's getting criticized as not having a lot of loyalty. Like, did he stop calling plays in the fourth quarter and just start packing his bags? I don't, you know, people are questioning that. But I just think it's kind of a sign of the times. And, you know, I talked to Dillingham on the phone after the Cal-Oregon game. Like, immediately after the game, he was on his way to the bus. I called him. I got on the phone with him. There's some talk about Arizona State. He told me at the time it was his dream job. He said, "That's the job that I would go there. It would be my dream job." And you know, he you know he didn't want that out there at the time. I don't think he's gonna ma- he's gonna mind that now because he's accepted the job. But you know, I really do think you're right. The sanctions, Dillingham, it just lined up. I don't know if it's gonna work out. I think it's a good hire if he surrounds himself with the right people. But I think well, that's it's the, the key. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the best that
1: Arizona State could do. And if I was at Arizona State, I would have done the same damn thing. That's the whole key is who's he going to hire, right? And is he going to take, I mean, I, I get back to, again, Dan Lanning, right? Lanning, super young head coach. He hires uh, a defensive coordinator, Tosh Upoy, who doesn't have a, you know, it's not like he's a grizzly old veteran. Same thing with Dillingham, you know, and Lanning is a defensive guy. He hires a young offensive coordinator, right? I, Dillingham to me has got to hire, you know, and not necessarily going to name ages here but he needs to hire somebody who has been around at the power 5 level called plays on offense defense at the power 5 level for a long time right I, that just i think is going to be essential and that's going to that's going to dictate to me whether they're successful or not to to a large extent long haul right i mean the first year or two who knows with the sanctions but if you're look if you're looking at ASU's trajectory over the next 6-8 years I think it's going to depend on whether he is willing to surround himself with guys who are smarter than he is, and if he is, then they're going to be in great shape.
0: Yeah, it, that, it really is the marker of a leader, right? You want the leader does it should not be the smartest person on his team. Well, um, let's it, let's. And, there's a great
1: yeah. example. I mean, Jimmy Lake's a great example, right? I mean, he he may, here's a defensive first time head coach at, in at Washington. He's defensive guy. Who does he hire on off? He should have hired the smartest offensive coach he could find. And instead he hired a guy named John Donovan who had been, you know, fired from previous jobs and everybody was scratching their head. Like what is Lake doing? And Donovan turned out to be a big part of Lake's undoing. You gotta be, if you're the young head coach, you've gotta be willing to surround yourself with, with guys who are smarter and be humble enough, be secure enough in your own position to go out and hire somebody who's who's smarter,
0: and I'm not a big fan of Tosh Lapoy right now at Oregon staff, and I kind of well, we wonder, should talk about Oregon. Yeah, I I kind of wonder what Oregon's going to do here because he has paid a whole bunch of money, 1.7 million dollars, and he is, um, you know, it looked to me like in the last couple few weeks of the season, Dan Lanning took a larger role with the defense. Now Lanning wouldn't confirm that. But, uh, you know, Lepoy was pouting a little bit on the sideline in the Utah game, and Dan Lanning was far more engaged and far more active. And I kind of wonder if Lepoy follows Dillingham to Arizona State uh, kind of with a push from Dan Lanning because the sum of what Dan Lanning had on defense with the linebackers like Mace Funa and, and uh, Noah Sewell, it, it just didn't feel like that added up to the to no. what you got on the field, especially – In the fourth quarter against Oregon State. Now, for people who didn't see the Oregon-Oregon State game, Oregon led this game by 21 points in the second half. They got beat 21-3 to in the fourth quarter. Oregon State ran 25 plays in the second half. 25 plays. That's it. To make the comeback and win the game. They threw four passes. They threw no passes in the fourth quarter. 15 runs, no passes, and they ran the football down Oregon's throat, and it was like a boxing match. Like, we've all seen a boxing match where somebody comes out and looks terrific for about six or seven rounds, and then all of a sudden they get fatigued, and they can't lift their hands up anymore, and uh, and, and they get knocked out. Like, that's what happened. It was the fourth quarter belonged to the Beavers. Give a lot of credit to Jonathan Smith and Oregon State. I think they overcame some bad Pac-12 officiating in the game. They kept playing. Uh, they You know, they won... The game, I think one of the writers said that like the quarterback at Oregon State is like a garnish if you're serving a meal. Like You won the game with your quarterback completing two passes in the second half, both of them in the third quarter, and they just ran the ball down Oregon's throat, and the the students piled onto the field. It was such a scene there at the stadium, but a lot of mistakes made by Oregon and their coaching staff. The donors, I wrote about this uh, over the weekend, the donors are upset at Oregon. They're questioning Rob Mullins, the athletic director. They're questioning the growing pains with the staff. You know, look, that just speaks to the expectations. Oregon went 9-3, and three, and people are pissed. Oregon State went 9-3. and three. They're ready to throw a parade in Corvallis. Like, but Jonathan Smith, it, it's, it was the tortoise and the hare. I mean, literally, one of these guys uh, took off at a rocket speed and, and w- took a nap, and the other one just kept plodding along and
1: passed him up and won the race. Well, and this wasn't... A- I get I think the Washington game is relevant too right the Oregon knew the Huskies were going to throw the ball throw 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 they couldn't stop them they knew Oregon state was going to run 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 and they couldn't stop them and Oregon's got better personnel than that like you said so uh, and those two teams outscored the Ducks 30 31-6 in the fourth quarters of those two games right i mean Oregon really uh in a, you know over and above the fourth down calls that Landing is making from his own, in his own territory, you know, the, the ducks got beat up and beaten in the fourth quarters uh, of those two games. And I can understand why Oregon fans and the donors are upset. There are three before the season, there's three games that matter most for Oregon, Georgia, Oregon state and Washington. And they lost all three and they lost to the, the beavers and Huskies by blowing leads uh, and getting outplayed played in the fourth quarter and they weren't even competitive against Georgia so you could see I can see why people would be upset
0: we had a, a donor a high level donor at Oregon who told me that he when the when the Ducks were up 21 points in the second half he called and bought a luxury suite for the Pac-12 championship game in Las Vegas and it was $11,000 and it's non-refundable so i uh i think uh there's a lot of people I'll take frustrated it. Yeah, I know. I, that's what I said. I said I'll be there. <laughs> you know, Wilner and I will sit in there, catered. Come on, um, but but here's the thing. Like I I actually think Dan Lanning can fix this if he learns from it. You can't go for it on fourth and one from your own twenty nine. You can't go for it on fourth and one from your own thirty four. Not while you have a quarterback, and especially not if you're going to have Bo Nix run the football. Like Oregon State sniffed that out. Jaden Grant was a seventh year senior. Who made the tackle in the play? That guy's got like four degrees. He's not going to get fooled on the football field. So I think, you know, it was a moment there where you realized the growing pains, young head coach. Yeah. We've been talking about Dillingham. It was on display. Dan Lanning will hopefully learn from this. I think he's a substance guy. I think he needs to surround himself with better coordinators, upgrade on the defensive side, needs to get his in place. I want to see what he can do. But You know, I think this is evidence of the growing pains you have with a young staff. And then on the other sideline, conversely, let's talk about Jonathan Smith. How impressed are you with Jonathan Smith going from 2-10 and his first year to
1: 9-3? and It's a perfect stepladder, too, right? What was it? Two wins? Five wins? What were they? Seven? You know, forget about 2020. Yeah, and then seven seven last year and then nine this year. It's like the, I mean, poster child for program rebuild in terms of your your win totals increasing by the year i mean i don't understand why the beavers aren't giving him a lifetime contract yesterday uh naming that that corvallis regional airport that dillingham (laughs) flew out of why don't they name that jonathan smith international or something i mean they have got to uh do everything they can to to lock him up for as long as possible right he is i mean that is one of the best coaching hires uh, in the conference of the, of this century, for sure. Last 20 years, right. He's been fantastic. A perfect example of a guy who is a great fit and also understands how to evaluate has hired. He's hired very well, right. Uh, Especially promoting Trent Bray last year. And uh, you know, just every, he's doing everything right. And he does it so under the radar, right. He's just, he's not a big personality. He just kind of, Churns along, and they do a great job.
0: And I think one of the things you know, Jonathan Smith's contract extension that he got just about a year ago gave him an extra year on his deal every time he wins seven games. So it got triggered when they hit win number seven. And Mike Riley had a very similar deal, except it was for when he got to six wins. So I think Oregon, in Oregon State's mind, they feel like they've given him a lifetime deal as long as he, you know, with some kind of me- with some measure of consistency win seven games, he will continue to be extended. But the problem is that his number now is well below market value, especially with Washington giving Kalen DeBoer, um, you know, another uh, million dollars for next season. So, you know, Smith, I think they're going to have to do two things. They gave him a contract, uh, you know, that that takes him through 2027. and And that's great. And, you know, he'll feels like he's got some security there, but I think they need to come in and do a very similar thing where they come in and say, hey, we're going to give him uh, you know, another million dollars and give him a bump up because he is now below market value and behind Kalen DeBoer at Washington. And I think they'll want to keep him happy or they'll want to invest more in his assistant coaching pool, which they did last year. So Scott Barnes, I saw Scott Barnes, the AD on the field. He was giddy. He was smiling. The students were celebrating. And I thought this is going to cost him (laughs) because they've got to go out and they've got to give Jonathan Smith
1: some money. They do. I mean, you think about there's a larger issue, and I don't know if we want to get into it, about, you know, resource maximization. And Oregon, you could argue Oregon State and Oregon are, you know, fairly – there's a there's a pretty big contrast there in terms of what are you doing with what you've got uh i don't know off the top of my head exactly what the football budgets are for the respective schools but when you add in you know all the nike stuff and all of oregon's recruiting classes over the last six eight years all the money they've put into their system assistant coaching pool paying their head coaches they have sunk a ton of money into that program Compare especially compared to Oregon State, and are they getting as much for their money as Oregon State is for its money? They're, they probably aren't, and you could argue Utah. Same thing. Utah's making is getting more out of their resources than Oregon is, and I just I do wonder if if the Ducks need to you know, retrench a little bit here uh, with Lanning going into his second year and and try to figure out, especially with the coaching staff, what direction they want to go. And I think part of the issue
0: is when you are out and you are trying to hire, you know, mercenaries for your coordinators or you're trying to hire the best recruiters who, you know, are going to be coveted as head coaches in this new world of college football, you're going to have turnover there. Meanwhile, look at Oregon State's staff. You know, he made a Jonathan Smith made a change with a D coordinator in promoting Trent Bray, but Bray was on his staff as the linebackers coach. So he has had Trent Bray on his staff the whole time. And he's had Brian Lindgren, his offensive coordinator on his staff the whole time. Jim Mahalczyk, the offensive line coach and run game coordinator who's the brainchild of that run attack uh, has been there as well. They gave him a big bump in salary last year. They have invested in their assistant coaches and continuity and look out I'm watching this game inside Reese's Stadium. They've got, you know, the construction going on. I think once they get the rest of that west side filled in, they've already sold they said 99% of the seats are sold for the new west side. They are going to sell out that stadium and they're they've only got 36,000 capacity after the renovation, but they've got a lot of premium seating, a lot of luxury suites. I think Oregon State is being very um, prudent about how they are progressing, and you're right. I think they get more value. Obviously, they both won nine games, but Oregon State pays its head football coach and its coaching staff less money than Oregon, has half a football stadium to draw in
1: uh, ticket sales and revenue, and spends less money on recruiting. And you do wonder, too, if you look at the bigger picture in the Northwest, right, and we assume that those... Those schools are sticking together in the next media contract for the Pac-12. But, right, I mean, Washington is on the ascent. Washington State's in great shape. Oregon State is on the ascent. This is an interesting stretch here for the Ducks, right? This year, next year, under Dan Lanning, are they going to maintain, you know, their, you know, the spot that they have held? They have been the best program by far in the Pacific Northwest, Right. Basically, since uh, 2018, uh, Washington's last really good year. I just wonder if the, you know, the balance of power is shifting. Right. Because obviously, as long as Washington can hang on to DeBoer, they are going to be a real beast to deal with. Uh, And Washington State and Oregon State are not they are cycling up. So I do wonder where Oregon's going to fall within that those four schools you know over the next 3 to 5 years.
0: I still think their resources, their facilities, their Nike connection is is uh, it's the great equalizer for them and I think they will still be better positioned than Oregon State and Washington State, but I think what Oregon State and Washington State have done is they have they have bought into substance and they have bought into Jake Dickert at Washington State and Jonathan Smith at Oregon State, people who understand their 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 university and their culture and on smith in particular like he played there he knows what it takes to win and so i think it's a really interesting study in this you know fast moving world and now Oregon state's trying to mobilize and you know they they started a collective during the middle of the season because they went oh crap we're getting left behind and you know i think there's some concern that they're going to lose some players if they start if they start to uh, you know win more games so i still think Oregon and Dan Lanning i believe in what Dan Lanning's doing I need a bigger sample size, but uh, I think we saw a young head coach make young head coach mistakes. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the title matchup. It is set in Vegas for Friday. It'll be USC as the one seed. It'll be Utah as the two seed. They played earlier in the season. Utah beat them at Rice-Eccles Stadium, 43-42. But, Wilner, that was a very different Utah team and probably a different USC team at that
1: point. Yeah. And and also arguably the best game of the whole season, yeah, that was a phenomenal game. And I look at the two, you know, how are they now compared to what they were? Whatever that was, October tenth or fifteenth, 15th fifteenth 15th or so. October. Yep. Yeah, I mean, to me, SC has improved more since that point than Utah has. Part of that's just because of injuries uh, on Utah's side. You know, Caleb Williams is playing at the highest level possible and looks super comfortable with their system and their defense. It's still not very good, but it's not terrible. And the thing about SC that is just incredible is the turnover margin, right? They are plus 22 in turnovers. I think it's currently 26 takeaways and four giveaways. That is, I looked it up. If they maintain that turnover margin for the rest of the, you know, the championship game and their bowl game, it will be the highest Uh, best turnover margin for any power five team in the country since Oregon in 2014, when Oregon went to the playoff with Mariota, that it is off the charts. And to me, that's the thing that I didn't foresee with SC, right? I mean, you figured their offense was going to be really good and their defense was going to be kind of wobbly, but when you factor in a plus 22 turnover margin, that changes everything. And some of it, you give them, credit for being opportunistic and making plays some of it like that Notre Dame fumble early in the second half that I thought changed that game that was just blind luck for the Trojans but they have been doing it week after week and uh if they and Cam Rising has had trouble with turnovers uh, as as you saw firsthand with the Oregon in the Oregon Utah game if that's the case again SC's going to win and probably win handily
0: yeah and I think you know something has not been right with Cam Rising since the USC Utah game. And we all know that he missed the Washington State game. He hasn't looked right. Um, You know, I was really looking at Utah because I saw them. I was there on October 15th inside Rice-Eccles Stadium. It was a phenomenal performance uh, by Utah, who they started slow in that game. People may forget that USC scored touchdowns in their first three drives. They went right down the field, 75 yards, 80 yards, 69 yards on those first three drives. And it was a really mixed start for Utah. But what Utah did... Late in the second quarter, they had a drive of about 60 yards, and it looked like they figured something out against USC's defense. Next drive, 70 yards, touchdown. Next drive, 75 yards, touchdown. Next drive, they went 72 yards and fumbled on the three-yard line. Then they went 79 yards, 75 yards. Their last six drives of the game, they drove more than yards on every drive. They could have scored six straight touchdowns. And meanwhile, it kind of flipped. It was a little bit like that Oregon State-Oregon game where where it just looked like Utah's defense figured something out. So I keep holding out hope, and we'll talk about why I'm holding out hope in a minute. I keep holding out hope that, that Utah figured something out in that game that they still know. But I also know, you know, we're talking about Dalton Kincaid being maybe out for this game. Uh, there's a question about his injury. We'll get an update later in the week. Uh, Maybe Utah won't tell us at all, and you know they'll go into that game because he was such a big part of what Utah did successfully. 15 catches, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean I'm looking at the box score right now. Kincaid caught 15 balls for 217 yards. He was targeted 15 times. He caught 15 passes. USC had no answer for him, and so you know that's probably what Andy Ludwig figured out. In addition to the little bit of run game, but. I just keep thinking like it's gonna have to be Utah playing chess against USC because USC I think if you line up, they've got, you know, eight or ten players that are just better than Utah in some in some personnel groupings. And that could be problematic for Utah. I think people are keep keep saying, hey, it's gonna be a two score win for USC. But I'm holding out hope that maybe Utah figured something out and we'll get a game out of this thing, but but, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen in, in that game. Now, Now let's go to my hope real quick. Is it good or bad for the conference that USC's in this game and on the cusp of a
1: playoff, Wilner, is this good or bad? Yeah, that's. A, I mean, it's a great question. And we should, you know, to set the table real quick, if SC wins, they're in the playoff uh, because of what's happened elsewhere. They're going to be in with TCU, Georgia, and Michigan, right? And there is a chance even if SC loses, if it's close, that they get in because there's because of the lack of a a quality uh option for the selection committee. So, SC wins, they're in the playoff, the Pac-12's drought, which began, you know, last playoff was 2016 with Washington, it has been hanging over the conference for 6 years now. Uh it's part of the narrative that says the Pac-12 is the fifth out, member of the Power 5 that finally get a chance to end the drought, to get back on the biggest stage, and it's with a school that four months ago announced it was going to the Big Ten. To me, I don't think that that matters. To, I think the Pac-12 just needs to get a team in the playoff, and it doesn't matter if it's SC or if it were UCLA or if it were one of the other ten. Get somebody in the playoff. Remind the country that there is good football played on the West Coast and just deal with it, and And you don't have to worry about that narrative Uh, you know, dogging you again all through next season. It's the worst case
0: scenario though. Let's be real because if this is a program, this isn't even like UCLA that might be forced to come back to the conference. This is a team that is saying we can't, you know, we're better off in the big 10 and we're leaving. And Oh, by the way, now the narrative nationally is going to be, well, it was always USC and everybody else in that, in that PAC 12 conference. And so I think Yes, I think if you ask the ads and the presidents, they're going to say, "Oh, this is great for the Pac-12. You know, we get to we get some playoff money. We get we've you know we get to matter. Look, it, it proves you can get to the playoff from the Pac-12. You don't have to go to the Big Ten. That'll all be said. But I think every Pac-12 fan that is not you know a fan of UCLA or USC is going to be sitting there, uh, at, you know, going, I, I wish that were someone else." We'd feel, oh, well, sure. We'd I feel mean, better but, about so, Washington,
1: Utah, Oregon, oh, Oregon yeah. State, whoever. It, but if you've got three options, one option is nobody goes to the playoffs, one option is USC goes, and the third option is you know, a non-LA school goes. Obviously, the best case scenario for the Pac-12 is for one of the other 10 to go but i think it's the conference is better off with sc going than with nobody going i think they're going to say that but i bet you
0: there's some fans out there some listeners listening oh, sure. to this who are going to go no it would have been better for nobody to go to this cuz we're going to have to hear about it and we, oh by the way there's another year of the uh, lincoln riley show coming up next year um i'm surprised i'm surprised they look they look better and better as the season went on and I was surprised that they didn't trip and fall. I had picked against them early in the year. I thought they were headed to maybe eight wins, and here they are. I got to give them credit. You know, Caleb Williams got it done, and you know they're they are what one point at, with no time on the clock from being undefeated like that. It, yep.
1: That is remarkable. It is. He's playing it. He has just been tremendous. But I, I get back to I mean plus twenty two turnover margin. That is what was impossible to foresee, right? Uh, elite in my mind. Uh, And, and the fact is that they, you know, they didn't play Washington and they didn't play Oregon. So you can't dismiss the, and, and Notre Dame lost to Stanford. So you can't dismiss the conference schedule as part of it. Now they could have beaten those teams. We don't know. uh, But that gets, that gets to something I wanted to throw run past you divisions or no divisions. This is an interesting year for the conference to have got done away with them. If they had kept the divisions, Washington would be playing SC. Two teams, arguably the teams that are playing the best right now, and also didn't meet during the regular season. So I, I just w- was wondering, you know, have you thought about that decision? I, I mean, it's obviously 2020 hindsight, but it would be a different matchup if they had kept the divisions all season
0: long. I wanted to see a healthy Bo Nix and Oregon against USC. It was the game I wanted. Now, you don't have a healthy Bo Nix. Now I'm watching Michael Penix Jr., and I, I don't think USC could stop him. Like, maybe he'll, you know, he's more prone to make a mistake here or there than Caleb Williams, but that's the game I want to see. And so, yeah, I'm bummed that there's no divisions, and I can't help but look at the way they scheduled and how, you know, you know the scheduling was set up with divisions in mind once upon a time, and now there's no divisions. Yeah, it's the game we all we'd love to see. Like Washington and USC and Oregon and UA. but it's the way that it yep. fell. I think you got to live with it and you got to know that, you know, the bigger picture is they were trying to get the best two teams in there and yes. it just didn't work
1: out. Well, and the other thing is uh, out of fairness to the conference, right, to get I mean, it took months and it had to go through all the NCAA bureaucratic uh process to get this thing Change So you can have a championship game without divisions. They finally got it changed by the NCAA. What was it in May, April or May. And at that point it was too late to change the schedule to adjust it off of the division alignment schedule. So SC has been, you know, they knew six years ago, SC wasn't going to be playing Oregon and Washington this season. And it was way too late in the game after the NCAA signed off on the change. Uh, It was way too late in the game to to alter the conference rotation. All right, so best-case scenario, we get a hell of a game in Las Vegas.
0: uh, USC, let's say they beat Utah, they advance to the playoff. What is the Rose Bowl going to do, Wilner? You know, It's probably Ohio State sitting there waiting for a Pac-12 team, and I don't know if Ohio State's going to want to be in that game. I kind of want to see Washington in the Rose Bowl against Ohio State. No offense to Utah fans, but if— they lose to USC. Uh, I it's it maybe
1: a rested uh, Washington team that I'd like to see. Well, I think if you're the Rose Bowl, isn't Washington Ohio State a way better matchup for you than Utah Ohio State? Because yeah, because it wasn't. It's yeah. not a rematch, right? It's not a rematch. Yeah. And Washington's ten and two, or Utah would be nine and four. Utah would be coming off a loss. Washington's won however many in a row. I mean, I just think it's a way better matchup. And ultimately, the Rose Bowl, they'll consult with the conference, but it's up to the Rose Bowl, and they're going to pick the best matchup. I think it's clearly uh, Washington against Ohio State or Penn State or however that breaks. And
0: I think they'll get – if it falls the way we're talking about, I think Washington will be in front of Utah in the college football playoff rankings, and I think the Rose Bowl will justify it that way as well. But if you talk about marketability, Michael Penix Jr. in that game against Ohio State – that's you know I'm tuning in to watch that and and you know I've seen Cam Rising I've seen Utah in that situation again I I love what Utah does as a program and a coaching staff but um, I think it's going to go to Wash I think Washington gets that berth if it falls the way that it does, um, it does and yeah. and you what, know I, what, oh, yeah go ahead. go ahead go ahead no no and I just think it, there's a trickle down effect to the rest of the Bulls because I know Oregon Oregon State and others are watching going okay if USC's in the playoff, this is where we go. And if they're not in the playoff, this is where we go. And, I mean, there's a trickle-down effect here that is going to reach everybody after Friday.
1: Yeah, uh, oh, for sure. The other piece to it, you know, at the risk of offending some Utah fans out there, the other piece to it is this is very possibly the last traditional Rose Bowl because next year it is a semifinal host for the playoff. And then if the playoff expands, when we think it's going to expand... In the 25, 26 uh, years, there's no traditional Rose Bowl at that point. This is it. This is the last, I should say, 24, 25 seasons, right? So the 23 season would be a playoff game, and then 24 and 25 seasons would be expanded playoff Rose Bowl. So this is it. This is the last traditional Rose Bowl. And I have to think, you know, there's going to probably be some people on that selection committee uh, in Pasadena They're thinking how, you know, Washington's been in how many Rose Bowls? Washington, Ohio State, that is a classic Rose Bowl matchup for what is possibly the last one. And I I just wonder if that will also, you know, play a role in their decision.
0: Yeah, and I think that's part of, you know, when I was talking about the Oregon Boosters who were not happy after the loss to Oregon State and kind of questioning Dan Lanning's decision to, you know, to Go for it on fourth and one. I mean, they were talking about the loss of a possible Rose Bowl. Had they gone to, yep. you know, had they gone to Las Vegas and beat USC, or had they gone to Las Vegas and lost very respectably to USC, would uh, a 10 win Oregon team have gone instead of those others? I mean, it's just a lot to think about, you know, what was at stake and what I- remains at stake this week. I'm John Canzano. Uh You can find my writing at johnconzano.com. Get a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. I will be in Vegas covering the championship game, reporting from there.
1: I'm with John Wilner. Uh, Wilner, tell Motor, find you. We are at Bay Area News Group is the mothership. Pac12hotline.com, and we are available at media outlets throughout the conference. I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. I hope you did, my friend. I uh, I haven't eaten since Thursday, <laughs> um, but uh was a great uh, great break. I hope you had a good one, too.
0: Yeah, I had, I, it was a lot of family, a lot of food. We're still eating that turkey. I've seen so much stuffing in the last few days. I'm just sick of it. But uh, it was just great. It was great to be around the kids, have the kids there, and just kind of exhale a little bit and enjoy the football. It is. It has been a phenomenal regular season. We're on to the postseason. We'll keep this podcast going. There's so much on the horizon still with the Regents and realignment and expansion and uncertainty and media rights, and so – uh continue to subscri- changes yeah i mean playoff yeah. yes
1: oh my gosh
0: continue to subscribe and uh give us feedback share it with other people we'll be here for you we're having a lot of fun with this thing thanks very much everyone